0: we are going to be talking about Yogananda, who was an individual who definitely went beyond his limits, at least from the perspective of those times, and what was going on in the early 1900s. That sounds like so long ago. What in the world are we doing a documentary on history here? Not actually, although history will play a part in our understanding about what this individual overcame. But more importantly, is how he changed the United States, and uh, he changed the whole world in many respects. But the book, uh, autobiography of a yogi, is largely about the impact he had on the United States. And to help us understand more of this, is a he's such an incredibly good author. He's we were here with us today. His name is Philip Goldberg. Hello. Good morning. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Show, Philip Goldberg.
1: Good morning. It's great to be with you.
0: I know that you are doing a run of interviews because your new book is out, The Life of Yogananda. Can I ask you just to describe? Because we're going to really talk about what aspects of Yogananda's life, which changed the rest of our lives, in, during most of this program. And I want to know what about Yogananda made you wake up to write an entirely well-researched, well-written book about his life? What what's so big? What's such a big deal to you about this man?
1: Well, (laughs) it's a long answer. I'll try to be brief. I read his autobiography of a yogi, his iconic autobiography of a yogi, uh, in 1970 when I was on the early stages of my spiritual path. It was one of many books at the time that had a big effect on me. I never became a formal student of his. I never became a disciple. I had my own path, but he was one of the teachers I respected and learned from and continued to. And then uh, several years ago, I published my previous book, American Veda, which is uh, covers the full 200-year or so history of how India's spiritual teachings, what we think of as yoga philosophy and the philosophy of the Vedas, how they came to America and filtered into the culture and changed irrevocably uh the way we understand spirituality and the way we practice it and a lot of other things. In that context I saw how uh what a towering figure Yogananda had been <laughs> and continues to be and you know a vital and terribly important piece of that uh long fabric that was woven in this India to U.S. story. Um, and I also got fascinated with his personal history, you know, the human story of Yogananda and how he became who he was and what he went through and how he did things. And, of course, I didn't have that much room to devote to him in a big history, so the, this, the seed was planted for doing a full-on biography, and to my surprise, no one had ever done it. And it's an important life, a serious life, and one we can all learn from. And what I really discovered in looking into it was how much he left out of autobiography of yogi. There was a tremendous number of uh, years that went by in his life he didn't even mention, barely mentioned in his own autobiography. There were details that most people, even his most devoted followers, don't know. And so I set out to write the full story. That's how it all came to be. Mm
0: -hmm. So if you were to make this a very personal uh, uh, conversation that we're having here, uh, in writing about Yogananda, you, you, you talk like a historian, you are a historian. But what inside of you changed as you kind of embodied this man and tried to understand his human struggles? that made him relate to all of us, the stresses and strain of Western society? And then what did you bring back from embodying this man, writing about him, that made you a very different person?
1: Excuse me. I think a lot of people who are um, on a spiritual path and who uh, incorporate into their lives practices like meditation and people who study with gurus, people who uh, dive into Indian philosophy or Buddhist philosophy and yoga, uh, sometimes we become a little overly idealistic about how uh, life will change once we uh, have a regular spiritual practice and start advancing on the path. We think life will get easy.
0: <laughs> oh, boy.
1: And, well, it's true. It happens to people. And and one of the reasons for that is these practices are extremely effective. And so some of the difficulties we, we face and the tensions and strains of life do ease up. And we think, oh, it'll just continue that way and everything I want will come to me and, you know I'll, I won't have any pain I won't have any suffering um <clears throat> but life is still life <laughs> and life uh has a way of having its ups and downs and its shocks and uh no matter how spiritually advanced we come we become uh you know we still have bodies that get sick and eventually die and <clears throat> our loved ones Get sick and die, and human beings cause problems, and all kinds of things happen and That often comes as a shock to people on on a spiritual path. Well, when you read the life of a great spiritual master like Yogananda and um discover that in the course of him doing the work he was destined to do and to uh, fulfilling the mission that he took on to bring uh, the treasures of Indian spirituality to the west and track his life as i did uh from birth to death but also but especially once he began his mission in the west he was only 27 and it was 1920 And it it wasn't easy. And then the Great Depression came. And and when you watch him deal with the struggles that any entrepreneur or somebody on an important mission would face, uh, and and you realize that even in the life of a a presumably self-realized master like Yogananda – life happens and he has to deal with stuff and he had to deal with money problems and personality issues and people suing him and people denouncing him and racial bigotry and religious bigotry and all kinds of challenges and when we see that we realize oh well our challenges are to be expected as well and what really matters is not whether life becomes easy or difficult, but how we respond to it. And then he becomes, uh, as he did for me, an example of uh, handling the challenges of life and um, of, of having a, uh, I would hate to say, well, an ambitious mission to accomplish, and a, a noble one, Um And dealing with those things with grace and um, dignity, Uh, it was a good example to uncover. And um, uh, we should all be very grateful that uh, Yogananda was one of the rare uh, spiritual leaders who wrote about his personal life. And um, I was lucky enough to have access to uh, documents and evidence of uh, things that happened that he never did speak about or write about, but were part of his life. And so all that goes to say that he's a good example, a fine example of a kind of spiritual role model because he, he wasn't just um, some saint living in seclusion. Uh, He was a, a man in the world and, worked hard and had to overcome a lot and, at the same time, nurture and cultivate his inner life, his spiritual experience, um, which was always his his highest priority, as it should be for all of us. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it totally does. I learned a lot about you and your answer. (laughs) Let me tell you what I learned about you. (laughs)
1: Well, good. Uh, Yeah, well, we always reveal when we...
0: (laughs) Well, what I've learned about you in the last few minutes is that there's a very large part of you, very practical, and that feels really good some people to highly spiritual individuals have, uh, have the capacity to be very spiritual and at the same time deal with life on life's term on a practical level. And that was such a well-described Uh, experience I had while I was reading your books was the sustaining I must maintain my dignity my composure and my connection to the divine while I'm facing a myriad of complications all the way from politics to personal conflicts to lies and yellow journalism and to racism and financial complications etc etc I mean he had this internal guide and you're saying that internal guide was also helpful to you because it lets you know your struggles are par for the course.
1: <laughs> yes. And I've, I've got well, I, you know, I've been on a spiritual path for half a century essentially. And I, I've learned that lesson over and over again, <laughs> especially right. in the early days because I'm, I'm in the world and I, enjoy life. And I, you know, I have relationships and I had a career and I have to deal with money and all that stuff. And sometimes you think, oh, I'm a spiritual person. It should be easier. But then you always have to remember it's not the outer circumstances. It's the inner response and the inner connection to the divine, as you said, that that really is where your satisfaction and your your, uh, where you husband your resources for dealing with life. Um, and, and that's a lesson many of us have to learn repeatedly. I didn't learn it for the first time reading Yogananda or re, yeah, researching him and writing about his book, uh, his life, but um, it reinforced that notion. And you, you come to say, well, his life was harder than I realized it was. Uh, and he had to overcome challenges. And he was. And one of the interesting things is he's different from most of us in that he was a swami. He had taken monastic vows. So he didn't have a family. He didn't have children to raise. But he was not one of those monks who retires into seclusion. He was, however, tempted to do that many times because that was his original vision for his life was to be a, a renunciate, living a quiet life in communion with God, um in you know, the in the traditional Indian ways of living in an ashram or even wandering the banks of the Ganges or living in the Himalayas in a cave. Uh, but he was given this mission to be a public figure and there were times when it was so challenging and the things he had to deal with were so ridiculous uh, that he expressed the wish to give it up and go back to India and be a simple monk. But he never did. And people on a spiritual path have their equivalent of that temptation. It's like, oh, I'm just going to quit my job. It's too much of an asshole. Uh, as soon as my kids grow up, I'm out of here. I'm going to go you know, live in an ashram in Rishikesh or something. And you know, yet the pull of being in the world often uh, is, you know, just our karma, so to speak, and we have to deal with it. And Yogananda then becomes a role model for integrating a spiritual life with life in the world with real consequences.
0: So let's carry that theme a little bit forward, Philip, if it's okay with you. And that is Sure Oh wait, I have to do this. I always do this mid sentence. Guess what, guys? I want you to be able to contact this individual. I want you to be able to get his books. philipgoldberg.com. See, I wanted to do that mid-sentence there. The <laughs> Life of a Yogananda. The <laughs> Life of a Yogananda. Okay, we're back to the topic here. You've got to contact us. This book is a really amazingly well-written book, m- much less also really interesting. Uh, but we'll talk more about that in a moment. So let's follow up on that that whole experience of what it is like to follow a path that Yogananda kind of lays out for us in light of anxiety and depression. So we're going to just talk a little mm-hmm. bit about what you feel his teachings are in terms of the psychological mental health or mental illness of everyday life. I'm, of course, a psychologist. Many people listen to my program because of wanting remedies for life's angst.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I personally believe Yogananda dealt with life angst on a very real level. He was a very emotional person. He went down and he went up with the various things that go on in his life. And uh, what does how he lived and also what he taught us deal with depression and anxiety from your point of view?
1: All right. Let me let me uh, frame that in a larger context. Okay. Um, Yogananda was one of many uh, Indian spiritual masters, gurus who have Uh, influenced us here in America. I now get mailings from my health provider recommending that I meditate for stress and, you know, symptoms of anxiety and so forth. Uh, Fifty years ago, when I started to meditate, you did not have doctors recommending it like that. Right. So, and you didn't have psychologists like you or physicians recommending yoga practices, meditation practices, and and the like. This is a result of these technologies, these inner technologies, uh, coming to us from the East and being researched in an empirical way in laboratories and having their efficacy, their value confirmed by science. So now they're part of life. Yogananda was teaching the similar methods, and they all have different <clears throat> specific methods. And his uh, form of Kriya Yoga was what he brought, and he was doing this in the 20s, you know, nearly a century ago, and uh, it was very um, new at the time. It, and these, you know, methods like meditation and yogic breathing. These were things that were uh, barely understood, barely even considered uh, something worth listening to uh, or listening about, hearing about. And so he was one of the people who gradually made Americans aware of these, the practical value of these teachings – and by the time he wrote Autobiography of a Yogi in, in 1946 and by the time he died in '52, he had brought these teachings into the mainstream more. And then in the late 60s with teachers like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Swami Muktananda and all the others that exploded on the scene, the scientific research got done and now these are mainstream practices and they're very quite effective for dealing with uh, symptoms of anxiety or depression. Not that uh, they're uh, panaceas or cure alls, but they're effective in the toolbox of modern mental and physical health, as I'm mm-hmm. sure you would agree. And yep. so, and so he was one of those teachers who introduced what has become an va- extremely valuable resource. And nowadays, you know, finding access to these methods and all the variations of them is quite an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to wait for an Indian guru to come to your neighborhood. You can, you know, find access to these teachings in, in uh, many, many different ways. And these methods are quite valuable. People like me <clears throat> discovered them in the '60s and uh, integrated them into our lives and found them to be of extremely great value. So I am one of those people who ended up teaching them and writing about meditation and writing about yoga and all the history of it and everything else. Um, and people like psychologists and doctors have come to recommend them. So in that context, Yogananda is a giant of you know this um uh, transmission of important practical, spiritual, and uh, mental, and physical methods into American life. In addition, because his life was, his real life, (laughs) so to speak, his human life, was more transparent than that of many of uh, renunciate gurus and swamis, we can look at his life as an example of dealing with the stresses and strains of life with um, an emphasis on combating them from within and cultivating an inner state of calm and peace and connection to spirit or whatever, however one defines the sacred dimension of life that enables us to cope and deal with these uh, circumstances of life and the triggers that uh, make us anxious or bring us down in a, a more evolved and more effective way. Um, there's a line in the Bhagavad Gita, which you know many of your listeners are no doubt familiar with, but the, you know one of the great sacred texts of India. Uh, and it says that the advanced yogi, so to speak, the you know person on a who advanced on the spiritual path of, toward self realization has equanimity in loss and gain, defeat and victory, pleasure and pain and I remember reading that back in the seventies and saying, "I want that." Mm-hmm. In my imagination, somewhere subconsciously, I read that as saying, well, you won't have pain, and you won't have defeat, and you won't have, uh, you know, uh, suffering. But it doesn't say that. It says you'll have more equanimity in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the key factor here. And you see that demonstrated in Yogananda's life. And of course, he's one of, you know, many people who uh, would advocate cultivating inner equanimity, inner calm, inner peace in the midst of all this. So whether you have pleasure or pain, whether you uh, win or lose, you will still have that inner peace and equanimity. And to me, the introduction of that um, concept and the practical methods like meditation to uh, fulfill that promise is, you know, a tremendous contribution that uh the East has made to Western life.
0: Oh, that is beautifully said. I, I readers, I want you to uh, listeners, I want you to understand that uh you're listening to Philip Goldberg and you're talking about pain and you have a book called Pain Remedies that was out a lot earlier. Huh? Yes. <laughs> Look, I'm looking peeking into your past here. You have a number of books that are about coping with everyday life and relationships and sexuality and executive health and different kinds <laughs> of healing. And I mean, we could get even the Bambinski reflex. I mean, you have really written on a, a, a wide range of things that <clears throat> pertain to you're everyday life. My... <clears throat> <laughs> you're uncovering my,
1: you're reminding me of my uh, history as an author. Wow.
0: Yeah, you have quite a history, You are an, and you are a very fine writer. <laughs> So in, in the process of, of what you're saying, I uh, and Yogananda bringing meditation and then it being popularized in the form of mindfulness. Uh, Daniel, mm. I remember when Daniel Siegel got on the stage decades ago and said, oh, I have this new methodology called mindfulness, and here's the science behind it, and so forth and mm-hmm. so on. And he became the amazing guru, and everybody was coming to listen to him. And I'm <laughs> thinking to myself, thinking to myself having by that time already a meditation and spiritual practice, much like yourself and, and saying to myself, uh, folks, this, this is kind of Hinduism here. (laughs) And well, uh, you know, that's, uh, go ahead.
1: That's an interesting question that you raise. Uh, did you want me to respond to the Hinduism part? Absolutely.
0: Yes. yes. (laughs) Dialogue. Well,
1: Well, that, you know, that's, that's a hot topic. It's well, not hot, but it's a complex topic because, mm-hmm. um, well, for one thing, the term Hinduism is a Western term that was imposed by the British Empire on what is really a hugely diverse and varied. Uh, landscape of spiritual practices and orientations throughout the the whole subcontinent of India. They need to lump it together. So there it was that we will call it Hinduism. And um, now we can compare it to Christianity and the other religions. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's kind of a misleading thing uh, because yes, in our terms, the teachers who came to the West and uh, were Hindus—they were most of them, you know, Hindu monks—and um, the, uh, the the great texts of yoga philosophy and what's called Vedanta philosophy, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. We think of them as uh, sort of sacred Hindu texts, and you know, the Gita is often called the Hindu Bible. But another way of looking all that is that, um, yes, you can look at all this in religious terms, spiritual terms, but you can also look at the core teachings that come to us from this ancient Indian tradition as a science of the mind or a science of consciousness and the methods like yoga and meditation um, as the practical application of these insights that came to us from uh, highly perceptive people back hundreds or thousands of years ago. Like our own scientists have given us brilliant insights and then technologies that make our lives better. Well, in India, the specialty was the inner life and the perception of what, uh, what our minds are and uh, consciousness are and how to uh, develop methods like meditation and yoga to cultivate higher states of being from within. So you could look at it scientifically. And I, I say all that because... In the whole history of teachers like Yogananda coming here, and you see this played out in in my book uh, in the story of his life um, there were those there were all these people who would resist these foreigners, these people these heathen <laughs> teaching false religion from you know hinduism uh and other people who would uh instead of denouncing them and and all that as Um, some people did, were open to the ideas they brought and wanted to hear more and wanted to test it out. And none of them, not Yogananda, not any of them, ever said, I'm teaching you Hinduism and I recommend that you convert or give up your own religion. It was never done. They always said, I am here to To bring this uh, ancient wisdom from my country, uh, you can look at it as an offering and test it out in your own life. See if these ideas make sense. See if these methods do improve your life. If you're a religious person, Take them on in the name of your religion as something that might deepen your connection to the, to God as you understand that. You can be a better Christian. You can be a better Jew. You can be a better Muslim. You don't have to be a Hindu. That's my path. That's my history. So that was presented that way. And it was also presented that if you're an atheist, if you're a completely secular person, if you're looking for methods of self-improvement and to become a, you know, a better, more successful individual in the world, then, you know, look at these teachings from a secular point of view. You There's no reason any more than, you know, somebody can use the computer for religious or spiritual purposes or for, you know purely material purposes, purely secular purposes for for health reasons for whatever these are technologies that apply to any any way of life and so the notion that oh these are Hindus that you know should therefore be greeted with suspicion or uh as religious missionaries um that's it's kind of a narrow way of looking at it and it it lead it led historically to uh, opposition to teachers like Yogananda. I mean, he you know, he had to deal with a lot of not only religious narrow mindedness and bigotry, you know, especially in the twenties and thirties, but also racial bigotry. Don't forget, he was a dark skinned man, mm-hmm. and you know, at a time when Indian pe- people from India were not allowed to become citizens in America. So, uh, well, anyway, I'm getting slightly off the topic you raised, but I think you you understand where I'm going with that.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's it's beautifully said that uh, Yogananda brought so much to us. He brought meditation uh, on many levels. He he may have followed in the footsteps of many but he popularized it at a time when it just really took hold. He popularized yoga. He popularized mm-hmm. spirit, spirituality in the context of one's personal life, not in the context of one's belief. He, he popularized the use of yoga for stress and depression and, and re- lowering anxiety but he also popularized the sense of having a a personal dedication to integrity as opposed to the uh ooh, the kind of health impairing lifestyles of lacking integrity he was the one mm-hmm. that kind of popularized karma and the everyday consciousness of what you do comes back to bite you <laughs>
1: or yes, to love but, you yes and he he was, in fact, as you've put it, following in the footsteps of others, but very few back when he came. He really... Um Many, many others, the gurus we became familiar with in the 60s and 70s and even now, they're following in his footsteps because he was more of right. a pioneer back in the 20s and 30s when there were very few emissaries from India. He, he followed in the footsteps, you could say, of a, of a great illustrious Swami Vivekananda who had come in the 1890s and whose... Lineage was represented uh, in the early part of the 20th century by swamis who were sent here to run uh, the centers, but they they had a much lower profile than when Yogananda started touring in the 20s and into the 30s. Um, he he was filling big lecture halls. I mean, he first started in, in Boston in the, the nineteen twenty and he was you know just hustling to to speak to you know 10 people in someone's living room but within a few years uh in the same city he was filling symphony hall you know and he filled town hall in new york and then later carnegie hall and the la philharmonic you know which seats 3000 people so he he was um, a spiritual celebrity uh you know of course it was before he would have been if he came 40, uh, forty fifty years later, he would have been on oprah
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and, right,
1: and you know the Tonight Show and everything else, but you know in those days he you know he he got a lot of newspaper coverage and and then you know even radio was introduced but um somehow you know with word of mouth and uh You know media coverage, whatever passed for media coverage in those days, he became quite famous and quite uh, you know popular, and as you said, uh, was key figure in putting these ideas and teachings uh, into the uh, mainstream of of the culture. But then it really exploded in the 70s with the advent of mass media. And uh, pop culture, like the Beatles going to India and that sort of mm-hmm. thing.
0: So, you do want to mention just briefly, because I have so many other questions for you, but everybody, guess what? Uh, Philip Goldberg conducts American Veda tours. You want to mention yes, that I briefly? Do.
1: <laughs> I'd love it. Thank for you for thank <laughs> you for the opportunity. My partners in the American Veda tours will be very pleased. Uh, <laughs> <Good>. Yeah, when <laughs> after American Veda, uh, book, my book came out, uh, we had the idea to take people on tours to India, uh, where the theme would be to es- visit not just the usual landmarks and sacred places of India, but Especially the places associated with the various gurus who became very famous. Uh, And so we have one coming up in September. Um, It's a three week tour, and we're taking people, uh, it'll be in three different sections of approximately a week each, and they can. And one of the features, in fact, because of my book on Yogananda just coming out is to visit the places that helped shape him into the person who became the famous Yogananda. So we'll be going to places where he spent his teenage years and his childhood will be meditating in the very room he did, and, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but other parts of the tour will also be uh, illuminating and effective. And they can find out more about it on my website. Thanks no for goodness. mentioning it.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's philipgoldberg.com, and I have that linked on the face of this show. So, Philip, I have so many other questions I need to ask you. I want to ask you. I'm, I'm just seeing this interview kind of going, oh, dear, I need like five more hours with you, because your uh, your knowledge of Yogananda goes to the pragmatics of his everyday life. But I have to tell you that reading a biography of a yogi, um, actually just so metamorphized my life, my spiritual walk. And I also included him in every, almost every book I've ever written. I make reference to him.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah he's,
0: very, yeah, he's very, he's very pivotal to my understanding of the way we live life. And one of the things that saddened me as I read your book is that he became so immersed in the everyday machinations of, promoting his idea and doing his speaking and so forth and so on, that we don't see the references in your book to the manifestation of miracles that mm. that took place between the time he wrote his book. And, you know, he 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 changed my life because I knew spirituality was practical and I knew it was also miraculous. And I knew that there did not need to be a dichotomizing between a miraculous life and a practical life. And Mm -hmm. that's the way I live. I say miracles are alive and here to stay and manifestation became a a nomenclature that got popularized. But Mm -hmm. this was the way he portrayed the parts of his life in the biography of a yogi. And I can't help but think that in the immersion of practical everyday concerns and the weights of life, did he stop investing his ability to create miracles um be, and I know on the stage he said well no more healing because people are just coming for the healing no right. more this yeah, yeah. and I'm sitting there saying wait a minute, wait 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 that's I know you would not reach the people where they live but how about get people to live where they can reach for the stars
1: so how would and you address And he he, that? he would have agreed um <laughs> I I his life was miraculous. I almost titled the book "The Miraculous Life of Yogananda," but for various oh. reasons, we, for various reasons, we kept it the way it was. In my experience, people there are two kinds of people who love his autobiography of a Yogi, because that book, "Autobiography of Yogi," is so filled with these miracles and wonders, these incredible yogis doing you know not just manifesting, you know, things in everyday life, you know, of practical nature, but levitating and you know appearing in two places at once and you know all these things that we would think of uh that many people read about in his book and say, "Oh, he's lying or he was just he was deceived, these things don't happen." Um so but there there are many people who love that book because of these miracles and wonders. And many people who love the book, even though they don't believe any of it is possible, but they love the rest of the book, everything else about the book. Uh, And uh, that's been my experience. Now, Yogananda was very much like all the other holy men of India, and the Buddhists and the Hindu sages and all that, they accepted what we think of as miracles and these powers that the human consciousness can uh embody and uh, manifest as just facts of life. these are the things right. that are possible these are and you know as you advance, just as you know some. Everybody has a certain amount of strength in their arms and upper body, uh, and some people cultivate that to the degree where they can you know lift hundreds of pounds and some people, everybody has the ability to walk and run, and some people cultivate that ability. You know, where they set records in in races, so, and they see the powers of the mind in the same way. Everybody has intuition. Everybody has powerful uh, connection to uh, the larger consciousness, and some people can cultivate those um, qualities and those abilities. To the point where they can routinely perform what we the rest of us think of as impossible or miracle miraculous, Yogananda just accepted all that as part of you know the way of looking at the world that he uh, his tradition upholds at the same time, he was offering these as um glimpses into what's possible for human life and actually demonstrating some of it in his public appearances. Um, At the same time, he was saying what uh, seems to be a paradox. These things are possible. At the same time, they're not what's most important about human development or spirituality. What's most important is the inner qualities of peace and love and compassion and uh, equanimity and fulfillment, bliss that comes from the cultivation of an inner life, not the outer expressions. They're real. They're fine. But if you get overly uh, enamored of them, they might distract you, from the true fulfillment of a life in communion with the divine. So there was always this tension, always this paradox, not only in Yogananda, but in Buddha and all the you know great spiritual teachers. I'm going to show you these things. I'm going to teach you these things. They're going to blow your mind. They're going to open your mind and uh, inspire you. At the same time, then I'm going to tell you, yeah, but that's not the whole. That's not what's really important. What's really important is the inner state of being, of fulfillment and bliss that is possible if you do these methods. Isn't? I mean, that's what I find truly interesting about that. But he himself was always, you know, that that's just part of his belief system, part of his way of life and there's some ambiguity about whether he could have just sort of done something in you know with his powerful state of consciousness to relieve his him and his organization of the financial strain that he always had to deal with and, you know, why didn't he just make that go away? Why didn't he just manifest all this money? Well, karma is very complicated, and that involves other people and whether they'll write a check. <laughs> and, you know, and on that level, you have to deal with ordinary life and banks and all that. And you can't just necessarily make it, you know, make something happen from from the state of mind when life you know becomes a little bit more complicated at the same time what's really interesting is he had all these concerns and it didn't seem like he could do something you know on some cosmic level to you know alleviate concerns about money or lawsuits or anything at the same time he came through pretty well So maybe the miracle was during the midst of the depression, when everything was collapsing and even great business moguls were, you know, going bankrupt, uh, his organization continued to thrive and flourish and people did step up. Uh, And you could look at that in a, you know, just in a regular ordinary way of somebody achieving something, but, yeah, you know, there's maybe an element of the miraculous in that.
0: <laughs> I actually would love to have uh, read his biography from all the history you brought together from the collection of miracles that he actually maybe diluted. Maybe it got diluted by the observers. Maybe it got diluted by the the context of how fast they had to manifest huge sums of money. I mean, twenty seven thousand dollars in one case. Someone just writes a check for and it's.
1: I know. Pictures. Isn't Easy, that incredible?
0: Yeah. Well, that and what does that translate into? About $350,000? I, I forget. Time?
1: I did the translation yes. into contemporary uh, numbers in the book, mm-hmm. but I forget what it was. But you're right. I mean, somebody writing a check for $27,000 in the 1920s. In a moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and yeah. that story is one of those stories. You know, they were facing some really serious financial difficulties, and somebody—he barely knew—just somebody was inspired by his teaching, said, "I'd like to contribute to your work." And she gave him; she wrote a check and put it in an envelope. And he thought he would go back to his hotel room, and it would be for a hundred dollars or something. And it was for thousands of dollars, which <laughs> translates in our day. I don't. Do you remember what I said?
0: Uh, it, I think it's like 300,000 plus. I thought it was 350,000. Close to. Close enough. Yeah. Close enough, right? That's, that's a, huge.
1: That's a that's pretty huge. big check. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. So,
0: <laughs> so so, I want to follow this up because one of the things that Yogananda did say is that I give you, and you bring this up in one of your chapters, I give you this uh, this ex- explanation of living in the connection with the divine and the divine inside of you. And I give you this connection And I want you to go off and I want you to experiment with it. And in the process of experimenting with it, you'll prove it to yourself. I don't tell you to believe me. I want you to go out and try these techniques and find these wondrous things happening. And then hidden within the jacket of saying, oh, you have to be an initiate to be it's hidden behind that is the Kriya yoga methodology that produces tremendous amount of connection to the Kundalini and the prana and the healing and Mm -hmm. the the powers of this. And I I just, I'm I I feel my feel myself irked at the idea that actually he may have had to water down his message for the populace. That was mm. critical. The 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 the, like the Cartesian divide between mind and body, the science empiricism versus spiritual folly, and yeah. having to yeah. water it down into kind of the self help message. A lot of self help. A lot of self help. And I do. All my books are self help, so there I am, I fall right into that. But part <laughs> of it I know, I know. So part of this is is I find that Yogananda is a as a person who preaches something that I'm emphatic on, which is your life can be miraculous and do not erase the power of being able to interface with the divine in a way that supersedes what's physical, interfaces with physical. And also allows you to to walk through the tribulations of what's physical in a way that's very elevated. And I feel that that was the essence of his message that got watered down. And I know that he had a lot of people say, oh, you're just watering down our messages. But I just can't help believe that may have been something that kind of oppressed him. Because he couldn't manifest this natural inclination of producing miracles and having everybody resonate in this kind of sense of mm-hmm. awe and amazing connection because his, his followers were struck the, the bright lights the absolute transcendent experiences they had in his presence it, it, that was so essentially his message is that this is these are huge things available to people who are living like ants on this planet <laughs> sorry I don't mean to criticize ants but <laughs> so, what are you thinking about that?
1: Well, no, you're 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 hitting on a very interesting aspect not only of his life, but of the the bigger picture of introducing these extraordinary blessings that of of deep spiritual truth into a, a world where not everybody's ready to hear that or accept that. He he was a shining example in that way of what every guru who ever came here and every person like me and others who have absorbed these teachings and want to convey them to others uh, have had to deal with. And that is, there's a term in Sanskrit called upaya, maybe some of your listeners have heard it it means essentially skillful means upaya. and upaya skillful methods skillful means and the great teachers had that part of that upaya is being able to convey the essence of their teachings to people of of who are whose capacity to hear and uh, level of awareness, you know, ranges far and wide, and the ability to communicate something of value to them and lift them up wherever they are, at whatever level they're ready to hear. So, Yogananda learned early on that the same thing all the gurus of the 60s eventually learned you know you can come here and you could talk about miracles you could talk about you know the 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 ecstatic states that are possible to live the the states of fulfillment and joy and love that are way beyond what we're currently living you can offer that promise you can talk about union with the divine, which is the promise of yoga and the bliss and joy that comes with it. And people can hear you and some will say, yes, I want that, sign me up. And other people are saying, will this help me in my marriage? Will this, you know, help me work out my career? Will will this improve my backache? you know and because that's where they are and the rest seems out of reach and you know they may not even be able to hear it and so the teachers learned as yogananda did uh, well i will reach more people if i show them that these teachings have everyday practical applications for their concerns in life and that became especially important as the economy took a nosedive in the 1930s but even in the 60s and 70s you found that happening so you know some of the teachers like uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi when he was the most famous guru in the world teaching his transcendental meditation and all the hippies like the Beatles were taking it to expand their minds and expand consciousness and uh, you know live ecstatic states of joy um, it wasn't long after that that people discovered, well, these methods can help lower the blood pressure and can help relieve people of stress. And that became part of the message, too. And it seemed watered down. We're offering all this, and you just want to lower your blood pressure? Well, yeah, that's what people wanted. And so the application of these methods is very broad. And so, Yogananda, back even in the 20s, started, you know, saying, well, the, you know, these kriya yoga methods, these medi- methods of meditation and breath work and all that, yes, they will give you, you know, ecstasy and union with God. But if your concern right now is how to attract a soulmate or how to improve your physical health, that's a good starting point. Start there. If you go to a yoga class now, you'll find people who are in you know, an ordinary yoga class because this is part of their spiritual practice and they're looking to achieve the highest states of yogic attainment, of union. Other people are there because they want to look better or they mm-hmm. want to you know, just um, reduce some of their stress or lose weight and mm-hmm. so everybody can come to these teachings from wherever they are and the skillful teachers like yogananda were able to say yeah take it take it on as for these practical purposes but don't forget there's a lot more
0: hmm. okay well i guess you got me so all roads lead to the divine <laughs> <laughs> all roads well, lead to the know. divine uh, i just i live in the uh, constant awareness that the pain that people walk in my office with that I have been helping for 40, 40 plus years. I do constantly have this angst between if I could just share with you all that I know that would liberate you from what you're going through,
1: you would walk
0: out that door and I'd never see you again. I'd miss you. My my business would not exist because people would be shifting, but that is not the way it works. (laughs) Just no, that's the way no,
1: and and you you mm-hmm. know that from your own experience. I but you're 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 a skillful psychologist and a caring human being, so you help them on the level they need the help, and you probably move them gently in the direction of something higher when you
0: can. That is uh, well said. Thank you. Okay, so now we take this journey with the time limit in hand. And we say, we read your book, and we read Biography of a Yogi, and what do we do with our everyday life so that we can touch the skirt of God, we can touch the hymn of God, we can say, this is so much deeper. This rattles and shakes us on a, such a deeper level. Philip, rattle us and shake us with what you know about Yogananda. So <laughs> you know. shake us and say, look at folks. Shake us. Shake my clients. Shake me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> here's here's one of the interesting things in the life of these people uh, and these great the great teachers the great yogis the great exemplars whether it's Jesus or Buddha or Yogananda or you know the guru you're going to see next week um they at their best live and exemplify the highest states of being we can have that. That's what they're here to teach us. We can have that right here, right now. To whatever extent it manifests and endures is a, a question of regular practice, regular cultivation. That's where methods like meditation and the, the methods of mind and body and soul and spirit that um, are available to us now Um, are so important, not just for practical reasons, but because they will lift us toward the highest states of being. And these methods work. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about Yogananda now. And the other thing is, and I've had uh, the great pleasure of, of pointing this out to some of his most ardent disciples. He lived and learned, and grew, and changed through the course of his life. He was born Mukunda Lal Ghosh in India, and when he was a young man, he was aspiring to these higher states of yoga, of fulfillment, and bliss, and you know, divine union. He didn't just He wasn't just born with that, he cultivated that. And you see in the course of his life, and I I bring these moments out, great spiritual breakthroughs that happened in the course of his life, some of them uh, in the last decade of his life. So he was working on his inner spirituality, even as he was uh, teaching everybody else to do so. And then he had these spiritual breakthroughs that, were enduring and lasting. And these, these experiences are available to all of us. So he was not just, when you read a book like mine where you take somebody's life you know, sequentially, chronologically, you see growth, you see change, you see what might seem to be unique spiritual breakthroughs, but they're also role models for the rest of us. We we can cultivate these states. He did. Why not us? That's what he would have said. In fact, that's what he did say. You can have what I have. Same as Jesus said. You can have what I have. And, and we should take that to heart. That's my way of shaking us all up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So greater miracles than these will you do, Christ said.
1: Mm-hmm. Do, there we you go.
0: Honestly, do we honestly believe it? I do. Do we practice it? I do. Oh, Yes. Okay, so then now, Phil, we have 60 seconds to get a story from you about when you did express and experience the miracles that are just so part of Yogananda's life. What are yours? What's one of yours?
1: I'm I'm a big believer in everyday miracles. And when I look back at the fact that I had this idea to do a genuine biography of a great spiritual teacher. And now the book is out and I made it through all the challenges and difficulties and here it is. And I'm talking to you on the radio and I'm, you know, giving a lecture in New York tomorrow night. That's miraculous to me.
0: Mm, that's, that's,
1: cool. <laughs> that's a miracle to me mm-hmm. and a great joy and a, you know, great, but I've had my share of inner experiences and, um, things happening that for which there doesn't seem to be any rational or uh, empirical explanation but to me the everyday miracles of love and joy and human happiness and just things you want manifesting that are good for me and good for my family and so forth that mm-hmm. those are the true miracles of life mm-hmm.
0: So we, we end where we begin, the miraculous of the practical, the practical of the miraculous, the living in their practical life and seeing things unfold in a way that just feels elevated and spiritual. Well, thank you, Philip Goldberg. I wish our conversation could go on, and maybe it will down the road. Is there any way you want to reach out to the listeners and say, connect with me?
1: Yes, please. And thank you, Carol. It's been a joyful conversation. Um, okay. My website my website is the best place to begin. Uh, PhilipGoldberg.com. That's Philip with one L. Goldberg.com, and I'm I have a lot of public speaking engagements coming up. If you're in the same city I am, come hear me talk and say hello and tell me you heard me on Carol Francis's show.
0: Oh, that would be absolutely wonderful. And if you wonderful. want to
1: go to India, take my you know sign up for the tour. But most of all, I want to say connect with me by reading this book the life of yogananda
0: oh absolutely thank you phil goldberg well listeners there you go that's just a little bit of a smack in your life to say get on with the miracle of your living way reach beyond the limits of your boxed in mind don't necessarily believe everything that everybody tells you about the struggles when there are miracles to be had and experienced right phil goldberg
1: i agree carol thank you so much
0: Cheers. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye, everybody.